This episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast, is intended for informational and entertainment purposes only. This episode of Cheat Codes was supported by Adacvio. Hello, Warriors. It's Dr. C, and I, I have some bad news and good news. So the bad news is Dr. Z is away, and he's not going to be on the podcast today, which is a really trouble because he carries the podcast usually. But fortunately, we have a great pinch hitter. Um, Amy Board is joining us. She is an expert podcaster. She's on the Bloodstream podcast. Um, I've been interviewed by her. Um, so I think, you know, she's going to do a great job filling uh, Dr. Z's shoes and really carrying me through this podcast. I don't know, Warriors. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> a poor man's Dr. Z. Wah, wah. No, I'm so excited to be here. This is my first sickle cell appearance or cheat codes, I should say. That That's an oversight. We're 46 episodes in and uh, Amy and the Believe team make this podcast what it is, really. Dr. Z and I, if you heard the the raw tapes, it, it would not be that great a show, but uh, <laughs> they put it all together. So, Well, I'm excited about our guest today. It was I am fantastic too. Fantastic conversation, and I can't wait to get into it. And uh, I, I love that you're on today, too, because uh, we're going to get into a lot of you know female reproductive health issues, and you work on... Uh, the Flow podcast that gets into those things a lot. And I, I, in my experience in clinic, I find that the young ladies often don't like talking to me about it. So having a couple of experts uh, will be will be really good. So thank you for, for pinch hitting for Amar today. Absolutely. You know, in my work on Flow, which is a, a podcast on the Bloodstream uh, media network, you guys can check it out. It's about extreme periods, and often one of the things that we've started diving into more and more is that aspect that women are uncomfortable speaking about it or just feel like it's a, you know, it happens monthly, so it's now at this point, it's just, you know, regular, and we don't even think that it's an issue, and um, and so the act of trying to talk about it more and more is so important. So I'm so excited that we're having this conversation. Of course, reproductive health, the conversation we're having today is more than just menstrual cycles. We're talking about fertility. We're talking about contraception. But it's it's just good to have this reinforcement that it is very important and a part of our health care. Absolutely. And I, I think people don't talk about it and then they get used to what they're used to and they yes. think it's normal. I, I have a cousin. Apparently, I ran into on the beach a couple of years ago and saw a big bruise and told her she should get worked up for von Willebrand disease. Fast forward a couple of years, her son had a major bleed. It turned out she had von Willebrand disease. Oh my and then I started talking to her about her periods, which, you know, I don't usually do with my cousins, but, uh, they were horrendous and she had had like uh, an ablation and, um, you know, obviously there was a problem there, but it hadn't been looked into. So I, I think, you know, it's really worth talking to your doctor about and, and really probably having more conversations about in general. I agree. So with that, we have a great guest today to talk yes. about these things. So yes. let's get to it. All right. Well, we also have a great guest today, Warriors. We have Dr. Lydia Pecker from Johns Hopkins University. She's the director of the Young Adult Sickle Cell Clinic. Um, she's an assistant professor. And she has a, an interesting background. She studied Africana studies at Brown University, um, got her medical degree from University of Pennsylvania, 
then went up and did pediatric residency in New York, fellowship in Washington, D.C. at Children's National and the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute before coming to Hopkins a few years ago. Um, and now I think treating adults, so pediatric training and now treating adults. And she's an expert in reproductive health and sickle cell and, and really um, probably the leading researcher in that area. Um, we've talked about her work on ovarian failure. Um, she's a clinical research scholar and very active in, in multiple aspects of research, including contraception, ovarian reserve and sickle cell, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, marijuana and, and other, other drug use in, in sickle cell, which we've talked about a lot on the, on the podcast. So a lot of things we can dig into today, and we're really so excited to have uh, Dr. Pecker on the podcast. Thanks. Welcome, Dr. Pecker. Thanks for having me. It's, it's, it's a pleasure. I'll, I'll start it off with the, uh, just a question Dr. Z usually asks when he's here. Um, so, you know, when you're in a room with a sickle cell patient and, you know, they're probably a, a young lady, how does that conversation go? How do you get into talking to them about reproductive health, contraception? What, what, what are the high points you hit? What are the misconceptions? What are, what are all the important things you talk about there? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I like to start answering this question by talking about the architecture of this conversation. So I think so often conversations about reproductive and sexual health for sickle cell warriors happen when the doctor has their hand on the door. I call them hand on the door conversations because it's the thing that the patient is embarrassed to ask and the doctor has not asked. And so the doctor is getting ready to leave the room or the nurse practitioner and they put their hand on the door and the patient says, oh, I have one more question. And of course that one more question is a big question about my partner needs trait testing, or I think I'm pregnant, or I might have a sexually transmitted infection. And so, you know, one of one of the things that I've been really working with with my patients is, is bringing that into the middle of, of our exam room and making sure that doesn't happen when my hand is on the door. Um, and so we do that in a couple of ways in our clinic. Um, the first is, so I care for young adults with sickle cell disease who are transitioning, coming across the great divide into the adult healthcare system. And so on um, either before or at the first time I meet them, my patients fill out a, a set of surveys. And one of those surveys is about their reproductive health. And it addresses questions about reproduction and, and contraception, um, about partner testing, about knowledge of pre-implantation genetic testing to diagnose an embryo with sickle cell disease. Um, and, and so for me, that's the first way that I set a tone with my patients that this, this matters to me and to our clinic. The next way that I do that is that um, I do a, a very long review of systems with each one of my patients the first time I meet them. And part of that review of systems um, involves identifying their reproductive and sexual histories. And I do this for young men and young women. It, it involves identifying their experience with pregnancy, their experiences with fertility or infertility if they've had them, their experiences with contraception if they are or are not using it, and also identifying whether or not they have a partner who needs trait testing. And you know, for some, some patients, these questions are really far off things, and for others, um, it brings things that are concerns to them into the room immediately. It's a very, we take care of a dynamic and diverse patient population. Not everybody has the same needs. I hear from my patients that they then know, right, that I can be a resource for them on these topics and that even if they don't have a partner at the moment, 
um, they know that when they do, it's time to come back and talk to me about getting that partner tested if they're thinking about pregnancy. They know that I'm totally supportive of them becoming pregnant, but I want them to do it when they're ready and when they want to. Um, they know that I don't think people with severe sickle cell pain when they get their periods, I don't think they should live that way. Um, and so they know those things from me. And so we open the door to having those conversations. That is, that is so important. So when you have those conversations, what are the common misconceptions that you come across? What are the things that patients say that uh, maybe they need education around or or there's there's gaps in their knowledge or untruths that they've been told by other doctors or, you know, from social media? Yeah, it's such a great question because the untruths that our patients hear are 40 years old. I, th- I, have, I have a list of things that sickle cell doctors should never say to their patients in my office that was written by Dr. Witten in the 1970s. And it's the same things that my patients hear today. And so I'll, I'll just list that for you um, briefly. You know, So first of all, around pregnancy, just I, I think that the reproductive misinformation is an extension of the kinds of misinformation that our patients receive in general, which is um, in, in some ways punishing. You know, You should never become pregnant because you will die. That we should just never say that to people. It's first of all, it's totally unrealistic. Uh, second of all, it's not true. Um, and 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 third of all, um, it's it's misleading about about what we expect for women in pregnancy. So I think there's a lot of misconception around pregnancy. Another place where we hear um, misconceptions is around birth control. So um, people have heard, especially that intrauterine devices, the IUDs or the implants can make you infertile. And we know that our patients have a lot of fertility concerns to begin with. Um, And so I try to address really head on that that there are not fertility risks to using highly reliable forms of contraception. Another place um, where there are misconceptions is about the the heritability of sickle cell disease. So I have heard patients say um, that that I can give my my child sickle cell disease. Um, And so of course that's not true, right? It takes two to tango with sickle cell disease. And I've also heard people not really understand what a genetic counselor does. And so we know um, that if you don't know what a genetic counselor does, that it's much less compelling to go meet with one to talk about how sickle cell is inherited. So there, there, that's some of my, that's my short list of misconceptions. That's a, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good start. <laughs> you know, I, I've heard from many patients that, uh, you know, people have told me I'm going to die if I get pregnant. And it's such a, such a terrible message. Also, Dr. Witten is from or was, you know, run the center in Detroit that um, that I worked at for many years. So huge, huge hero. I'll show you a copy of this at some point. It's really a beautiful document. <laughs> is that survey tool you use, is that something you guys made? And is it something that other clinics could use? Yeah. Um, thanks for asking that question. We We made it just because we thought we needed to do something. Um, And we have a a plan to revisit that survey to find out if we're actually getting the information we think we're getting out of it. Um, But one of my um, students, Lizzie Williams, presented at ASH the results from our family planning survey last year, and we're looking forward to getting that published in the next few months. Um, And I'm happy to share that survey, although um, it's neither validated um, and and we need to revise it, we know. But, you know, to me, I've I've been sharing it with people, and and I think it's it's one of the ways to start inviting these comments conversations concretely in the clinic. I think that's so important. Dr. Parker, I have a question, actually, and this is based on my own ignorance. And I just wonder if some listeners maybe would just be interested in hearing just a very one-on-one baseline question Mm -hmm. of how sickle cell disease affects monthly menstrual cycles. Um, You know, I know that 
we don't talk about it. We don't, I mean, you know, I, I struggle to talk about it even with friends and with my partner. And so I just wonder um, if there are just some, you know, if you can pull back the curtain a little bit and just give us a one-on-one. Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that. Uh, you know, so the first thing we always, I always affirm is that everybody's a little different, right? And so we never, we never speak about individuals with sickle cell as if they're a homogenous group of people or a homogenous group of women or homogenous group of girls. So just like everybody else, people's periods um, with sickle cell vary. Um, uh, but there's a few features that I think, you know, when I think about the anticipatory guidance around um, menstruation, there's a few things I think about. So, you know, for girls, we know that puberty can come later um, than average. And so, you know, the average African-American girl menstruates around age nine or 10. We know that, that girls with sickle cell disease menstruate later than that. We don't know whether treating sickle cell disease changes that at all. But we but we do know that they menstruate later. But that's really different than not expecting a period. So we absolutely expect 100% of girls with uh, sickle cell disease to menstruate. And so occasionally I have met um, in a late adolescent or young adult in their early 20s who's never gotten a period and has never been worked up because it's been attributed to sickle cell disease, and that should not happen. Um, it, if you are not menstruating and you're in your 20s with sickle cell disease and you don't know why you, you deserve an evaluation, it shouldn't be attributed to your sickle cell. So that's the first thing about what do we expect with periods with sickle cell. The second thing is um, that about a third of women with sickle cell disease report experiencing sickle cell pain with their periods. And I think um, for those of us who are women without sickle cell disease, it, it provides an, a, an astonishing window into how nuanced people with sickle cell disease are able to talk about their pain. It's just this, it, you know, we don't have a lot of parallels if you don't have sickle cell to understand what that experience is like. Mm -hmm. um, but, but women with sickle cell disease and Diva Sharma at Vanderbilt has really shown this, really dif differentiate um, VOC pain, sickle pain from period pain. Huh. And about a third of women only get period pain and about a third of women don't get any pain. And about 20% of women get overlapping period pain and sickle pain and about 10% of women only get sickle pain. So the patterns are really different. And so that's another, when I talk about what I ask my patients when I get into the exam room with them, you know, I say, do you get period pain with your, your periods or do you get sickle pain with your periods? And they're really able to talk about that quite, quite clearly. That's fascinating. Yes, it is. Uh, because I'm ignorant, what's the difference between period pain and sickle cell pain? Well, I um, can tell you that um, I am not an expert on that because I've only experienced one of those forms of pain. Um, and I can also tell you um, that, you know, I think that that when patients talk to me about treatment, I think that's where it really differentiates. So period pain responds really nicely to NSAIDs, but the crisis pain really can send people to the hospital. So, you know, you, we have patients in the, you know, you wear two hats when you're on this podcast, right? You're speaking to the docs, you're speaking to the patients. But, you know, when, when for, the, for the docs out there, when you have patients who are getting admitted every month because they're having VOC pain with their periods, it's time to do something different, you know? So treating, treating um, sickle pain usually involves, involves um, opioid medications for severe pain. And I wouldn't necessarily say that we treat um, plain old period pain with that, right? NSAIDs are, you know, ibuprofen, Advil, the, the, that family of drugs is really quite an effective medication for plain old cramps. Have, have you found when people have that menses-induced sickle cell pain that contraception helps, whether it's IUDs or using um, oral contraceptive pills that lengthen the time between cycles or um, different, different approaches to treat the menses, but to prevent the sickle cell pain? 
Yeah, and so so there's not great data on that, unfortunately. Um, we know that for women without sickle cell who have severe cramps, um, hormonal contraception definitely helps with that kind of pain. And so I think you know that that should be extended to the sickle cell community. In terms of what modifies sickle pain with menstruation, it, we don't have great data. Um, for me, I have a in in the absence of data, I have applied a standard of reasonableness to this problem. And my two standards of reasonableness are: first of all, if this is sickle cell pain, then we should be making sure you're on optimized disease-modifying therapy because we know that's the best treatment for sickle cell pain. Um, we need research about whether maximally tolerated doses of hydroxyurea prevent sickle pain during periods. We don't we don't know. Um, but but I think that's the first piece is that sickle pain is best treated for everybody um, with disease modifying therapy. The second um, the second piece is that I think it is reasonable to think that for many women, if you stop cycling um, by using um, long acting reversible contraception like IUDs and implants or even depot injections, um, that it is reasonable to think that some fraction of people would feel better. And so for people who are having really impaired quality of life, and that could mean you're hospitalized, but for many more women, it means you're missing school or work or missing out on life because you feel crummy every month. I usually encourage them to, to try something. You can always, you can always undo it. But I think um, I think that both the but the, both our patients who sort of get into this routine where every month they're having symptoms, and also the doctors who sort of get into the routine where the patient has this. They, we don't think of this as a, as an interruptible cycle, and we don't we don't push hard enough to to say this is not inevitable. Sort of practically managing that, I think there, there's different models. I think there's some primary care docs who feel comfortable managing contraceptives themselves. I think in sickle cell clinic, we used to um, refer patients to our adolescent doctors or OB-GYN and um, started to move to a girls clinic model um, with the foundation for women and girls with blood disorders um, sort of as a backbone of that and have the hematologist and the, the gynecologist and the adolescent doctor in the room. Um, what are you guys using and, and what do you think is the best model there? So um, we, uh, we use not a, a comprehensive care model, but I think there's ideal and there's real. And it sounds like in Detroit, you guys are closer to the ideal than the, than the real. Nobody's ever said that before. Detroit, I'm not trying to say it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a denier of Detroit realism. <laughs> uh <-oh. laughs> But um, I, you know, the, the serious answer is that I think there's that that reproductive health care belongs in the sickle cell clinic. It doesn't mean that hematologists are delivering the reproductive health care, and I think that's the distinction. And I think you know, that's the really hard part right now is that many hematologists say like, well, I, I didn't become a hematologist to be a gynecologist, and and furthermore, I don't have that training, right? And so and so there's real reasons to bring those specialists into the comprehensive sickle cell care model, um, and, and one of them is that that individuals with sickle cell disease deserve that expertise just like everybody else. Um, the, the other is that we know, because we know this from doing um, multidisciplinary care with our psychiatry team at Hopkins, and we know that from other um, multidisciplinary care models, um, that, that individuals with sickle cell disease do best when they have their sickle cell experts paired with people in other disciplines, um, because sickle cell is such a, uh, an all-encompassing disorder. And so we, you know, it's really a back and forth between the, the multidisciplinary team to really make sure the sickle cell is considered 
in whatever else is going on. But I think the, you know, the answer to your question is ideally we would have genetics counselors, gynecologists, high-risk obstetrics, community health workers, and, and nurse educators in the clinic to provide um, appropriate and comprehensive reproductive health care for our patients. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I think it's so hard. You know, our patients have so many different things going on in normal life with sickle cell um, and with medical care. It's so hard to get to all of these different appointments at different places. And then if you're the doctor taking care of them, it's hard to coordinate all of that and make sure all of the information is where it needs to be. So I think when you have a model where everybody comes together around the patient and and there's much more trust there because as their regular doctor, they know what's going on. But I also feel like you need that expertise, especially me. I mean, I stayed out of the girls clinic and I think everybody appreciated that. The way management changed in really a pretty short time. I mean, there was a time I think we were putting everybody on Depo Provera. And then one day I said, what happened? We're not putting anybody on that. They said, yeah, we don't do that anymore. Um, so I think you need people who keep up on, you know, the, the best management. Yeah. And I don't, we, we, we have lots. I, so one of the things, you know, that's not well understood about contraception and sickle cell disease is how much practice is informed by the, the, the sickle cell aspect versus practice dynamics where you where you work. So um, and, and some of that's based on, you know, different di- regional differences in practice. When I was in medical school, I never saw more women get implant on. Uh, and and then like in in the Bronx at Montefiore, like I, I don't I don't remember anybody having implant on. So I, I think there is some there the extent to which this reflects uh, girls and women speaking to other members of their community who have birth control experiences versus the expert input of sickle cell docs or gynecologists is not is not has not been well elucidated. Um, we certainly use Depo for lots of our patients still, um, but I think you know. Th- I, I wanted to add that um, this issue of contraception and who writes for the contraception and, and the role of the hematologist and all of this is dreadfully important. And, and the reason for that is that it's not well fleshed out whether estrogen containing contraception should be recommended to girls and women with sickle cell disease. And, and of course, the reason for that is that um, giving um, people estrogen containing contraception, no matter if they have sickle cell or not, is a is a risk factor for having blood clots. The current CDC guidelines and the NHLBI 2014 sickle cell guidelines basically say that it's acceptable to give estrogen containing contraception to girls and women with sickle cell disease. And they say prioritize progesterone only methods, but estrogen contraception is acceptable. We are concerned by that recommendation, um, partly because um, sickle cell disease is a, is a high-risk thrombophilic condition. It's a high risk for blood clots. And we know that in other women who don't have sickle cell who are at high risk for blood clots, about 50% of them will eventually develop a blood clot on estrogen-containing contraception. Um, and and so that seems like a, an unacceptably high risk in our patient population, especially because one thing that dis- differentiates uh, people with sickle cell from people with other kinds of high-risk clotting conditions is that our patients clot earlier in life, um, and so it seems it seems like that risk is is not acceptable, especially because so many patients develop blood clots even without being exposed to estrogen-containing contraception. So I make a real effort to educate my patients and document in my notes the kinds of contraception that I think, hormonal contraception that I think are safest for women with sickle cell disease. And I'm hopeful that, hopeful that various people's research efforts and um, guideline efforts will, will, uh, 
will serve my recommendations well in the future. But you know, the the methods that we talk about, Mike, are um, the IUD, which contains progesterone, the implant, which contains progesterone, um, progesterone-only pills, which are probably the least reliable form of progesterone-only contraception, um, and and the shot, which is sort of an intermediate-acting depot shot, three three months. So th those are those are sort of my big four contraceptive methods, hormonal contraceptive methods for women with sickle cell disease. We see in our community that people use low, low reliability methods of contraception, and we don't yet know whether that explains high risks of unintended pregnancy um, in women and girls with sickle cell disease, but we certainly uh, wonder if that helps explain the pattern. What about copper IUDs? Yeah, so I don't recommend the copper IUD. Do, has it ever been studied? No, Mike, could you please um, do that study for us. We could use some underwriting for that study. Um, in, in, in fact, I, I, I wouldn't. I probably just wouldn't do that study because I think it has a flawed hypothesis, which is that it could be helpful. And there's a reason that I think it has a flawed hypothesis. The copper IUD is not hormone suppressing, and in fact, is associated with even heavier periods. And I think you know one of the things that worries me about that worries me about why um, girls and women with sickle cell disease maybe don't find long-acting contraception that appealing when it's actually an unbelievably effective form of birth control um, is that. Our, our patients have a lot of things done to them. They, they get a lot of blood draws, they have a lot of surgeries, they have a lot of hospitalizations. And so while you know we, don't, we hope people don't have to live that way, I, I understand that people may feel wary of having another procedure. And so when I have women who have decided that they would like to get an IUD, I usually do some anticipatory guidance with them about what to expect um, in, in terms of the fact that it can be um, uncomfortable to have an IUD placed and actually can cause uterine cramping. And so I talk about, you know, before you go in to get your IUD placed, you should take ibuprofen unless you have kidney problems. Well, unless there's another reason you can't take ibuprofen, you should take some ibuprofen because um, it will help with the pain associated with your uterus contracting when it when a foreign body when an IUD is introduced to the uterus. So I think there's some some work we can do with like really giving patients the tools to get through the experience and and then also have the benefit of a high reliable, highly reliable form of contraception. Today's episode of Cheat Codes is brought to you by Novartis, manufacturers of Adacvio and the Adacvio Warrior Way program. Hey, warriors fighting sickle cell disease, you know how unpredictable and uncomfortable sickle cell pain crises can be. That's why it's so important to explore your options. One of those options is Adacvio. What exactly is Adacvio? Adacvio is a treatment for people 16 years or older with sickle cell disease that could reduce how often certain pain crises happen. It is not known if Adacvio is safe and effective in children under 16 years of age. And the Adacvio Warrior Way program can provide you with support, including tips, tools, and resources to help you understand Adacvio. Reducing the frequency of pain crises may be possible with Adacvio. Talk to your doctor to see if treatment with Adacvio is right for you and visit adacvio.com to learn more. That's A-D-A-K-V-E-O.com. Visit adacvio.com today. Important safety information. What is Adacvio? Adacvio is a prescription medicine used in people 16 years of age and older who have sickle cell disease to help reduce how often painful crises happen. It is not known if Adacvio is safe and effective in children under 16 years of age. What should I tell my doctor or healthcare provider before taking Adacvio? Before receiving Adacvio, tell your healthcare provider about all of your medical conditions, including if you are pregnant or plan to become pregnant, 
Adacvio may harm your unborn baby. Are breastfeeding or plan to breastfeed? It is not known if Adacvio passes into breast milk. You and your healthcare provider should decide the best way to feed your baby during treatment with Adacvio. Tell your healthcare provider about all of the medicines you take, including prescription and over-the-counter medicines, vitamins, and herbal supplements. How will I receive Adacvio? Your healthcare provider will give you Adacvio as an infusion into your vein through an intravenous or IV line over 30 minutes. You will receive your first infusion and then a second infusion two weeks later. After that, you will receive an infusion every four weeks. Your healthcare provider may also prescribe other treatments for you to take during treatment with Adacvio. Do not stop receiving Adacvio unless your healthcare provider tells you to. If you miss an appointment for an infusion, call your healthcare provider as soon as possible to reschedule. What are some of the possible side effects of Adacvio? Adacvio may cause serious side effects, including infusion-related reactions. Infusion-related reactions may happen during or within 24 hours of receiving an infusion of Adacvio. Your healthcare provider may slow down, temporarily stop, or completely stop your infusion with Adacvio if you are having an infusion-related reaction. You may continue to receive Adacvio at a slower infusion rate, and your healthcare provider may give you certain medicines before your infusion to lower your risk of getting an infusion-related reaction. Your healthcare provider should monitor you for signs and symptoms of infusion-related reactions and treat your symptoms as needed. Tell your healthcare provider right away if you get any of the following signs and symptoms of an infusion-related reaction. Pain in various locations, headache, fever, chills or shivering, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, tiredness, dizziness, sweating, hives, itching, shortness of breath, or wheezing. Adacvio may interfere with a blood test. Tell your healthcare provider if you are receiving Adacvio before having any blood test. Adacvio may interfere with a laboratory test to measure your platelet counts. The most common side effects of Adacvio include nausea, stomach area or abdominal pain or tenderness, joint pain, back pain, fever. These are not all of the possible side effects of Adacvio. For more information, ask your healthcare provider or pharmacist. Call your doctor for medical advice about side effects. You are encouraged to report negative side effects of prescription drugs to the Food and Drug Administration. Visit fda.gov medwatch or call 1-800-FDA-1088. General information about the safe and effective use of Adacvio. Medicines are sometimes prescribed for purposes other than those listed in a patient information leaflet. You can ask your healthcare provider or pharmacist for more information about Adacvio. If we could switch gears from when people are trying not to get pregnant <laughs> to the other side, when they're trying to get pregnant. Absolutely. You know, d definitely people with sickle cell have um, challenges with fertility. You know, we have many, many patients who have successful pregnancies and wonderful children. How often does that come up in clinic and, and what is your approach? Does everybody go to high risk pregnancy doctor? Do you do, you know, preconception planning, any special diets or additional supplements? How do you manage that and what advice do you give to patients? I hope we have another two hours for this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just, just the two minute version. No, 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 we have plenty of time. <laughs> Um, those first conversations I have with people about reproduction, there's a question called the one question, and this is, I sort of adopted this from some of the gynecology literature, which is like, if you only ask people one question about their reproductive intentions, what should you ask them? And there's an argument that the question you might use is, are you planning to have a baby in the next year? And so I ask this question to my young men and women. Uh, I try to ask it every year. I certainly ask it the first time I meet them to just get a, a flavor for things. Um, but, but I think, again, this preconception conversation happens first 
before you're ever trying to get pregnant, ideally, because it's a routine. We should expect people, like our whole goal is to have people live fulfilled lives with, with sickle cell disease. And, and it's not true for everyone that, that that goal includes having children. And now that I have two rugrats running around my house, I sort of get that, that it's not always <laughs> ideal. Love you, kids. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, for, for, for people who do want to, uh, everybody thinks about it, right? That's like a normal thing in life. Do I want to have kids? Do I not want to have kids? For most people, whether you have sickle cell disease or not, that decision is a huge decision. Um, and it's a decision that has huge social consequences. It can have familial consequences, et cetera. So, you know, we have to think about that in that context. So, so the first answer is preconception counseling starts when I meet a patient, right? And it starts with helping them understand the, the chance of passing the sickle gene to, a, to their child. It starts with talking about partner testing. That's the, that's the first part of preconception counseling. And that doesn't need to start the day that a patient tells me that they're ready to start trying. Right. Um, but when when a patient is ready to start trying or hopefully they've given me six or 12 months notice in advance that this is going to happen, um, I have a set of conversations with them about how we're going to um, look at their end organs before they get pregnant. So end organ function can decline in pregnancy. So it's great to have an eye exam and a kidney, your kidneys checked out before you get pregnant. Um, if you've had lung problems in the past, it's good to have your lungs checked out before you get pregnant. We know as your uterus contracts, your lung fields get smaller. So, so thinking about what end organs are or are not working, and that includes um, if you've been chronically transfused and you have iron in your liver, um, you know, we're going to put you on a prenatal vitamin. Prenatal vitamins with iron cause all kinds of side effects. Iron causes constipation and nausea. It's like nobody's favorite supplement, right? And um, and so if you already have iron overload in your liver, I'm not gonna, I'm going to try to get you on a prenatal that doesn't have iron in it. That's like an easy thing to do. So so we move from sort of these end organs to thinking about what medications we need to start or stop if you're starting if you're thinking about getting pregnant. So certainly starting a prenatal vitamin. Um, some some teams start higher dose folic acid. Um, in addition to the to the prenatal vitamin, um, that's a European practice, which is sometimes does and does not carry over into the U.S. context. There's no data to support it. Hydroxyurea is always a bit of a humdinger. So lots of women have gotten pregnant on hydroxyurea, and there's um, not great evidence that those pregnancies have been affected by hydroxyurea. So there's not great evidence that they haven't been. But I think on the, on our, in the aggregate, our experience with women who get pregnant on hydroxyurea and continue the pregnancies is that they are okay. Um, my, my practice is to discontinue hydroxyurea in women once they start trying to conceive. Um, and I put everybody on chronic transfusions um, who has sickle cell anemia. So if you have a low hemoglobin associated with your sickle cell disease, the only exceptions to that, right, are if you really tell me you don't want to get transfusions, well, it's not an absolute indication for transfusion um, uh, pursuing pregnancy. Um, but but I think it's a relative indication. Um, the other thing is if you're alloimmunized already, I might not start you on chronic transfusions because it might not be safe. Um, I think, you know, as, as a the sickle cell community has, has not yet adequately considered the underlying risks to the fetus associated with just plain old anemia. So we know the MFMs think about this, right? The maternal fetal medicine doctors think about this, that if I have a patient without sickle cell disease who has anemia, that anemia is, is a risk factor for their pregnancy. But in sickle cell, everybody's got anemia. So exactly how you think about or conceptualize the anemia as a as a risk separate from sickle cell disease, I, I don't think we I don't think we've sorted that out yet. In any case, I uh, I try to to recommend transfusions um, for patients who've had who have sickle cell anemia or have had severe complications. And and that's in the in the pre uh, pre pregnancy phase. I do. 
Yeah. What, what do you target uh, an S level or a hemoglobin? It sort of depends on the patient and what kinds of complications they've had. If they've had a pretty good course, I might take a less aggressive transfusion approach. You know, somebody who's really, really well controlled on hydroxyurea has an F fraction of 30%. I might just put them on, on transfusions to target an S of 50% and a hemoglobin of 10 and see how they do, right? You, it's, an, it's an adaptive system. If you don't do well, you can, you can make a, a stronger threshold. The, the one other thing I wanted to say, Mike, about... Um, preconception counseling is one, th one thing that sometimes gets overlooked is that um, to have a baby, you have to deliver the baby. And delivering a baby requires moving your hips. And so we know that many of our patients have avascular necrosis in their hips, and certainly this does not get better with age. Um, so one of the things that we I do early with my patients and, and have them talk about with the maternal fetal medicine doctors is the extent to which hip disease could limit their ability to birth a baby. And um, I can't say that it's been a terrible obstacle, even for patients who have pretty impressive avascular necrosis in their hips. But I think it's just another part of sort of the calculus of, of um, what you think about and what goes into a pregnancy in, in a woman with sickle cell disease. You, know, you, you started out by saying, like, first we talk about partner testing. What if somebody has a long-term partner and they have sickle cell trait? We should take a step back because sometimes people know that coming into my clinic and sometimes think people think that they know that coming into my clinic. And I've had more than one experience where I've asked someone how they know that their partner has what they has or does not have what they think they have. And um, and with my um, support, they, they get their partner tested again and we find something different. So um, so the first step of partner testing is making sure that your partner got the right test at the, and the right interpretation of that test. Um, you know, we, there's a history of sending something called the sickle dex to diagnose sickle cell disease. We know that is wrong, and it's wrong for diagnosing sickle cell trait as well. The hemoglobin electrophoresis is the right test. Um, but because there's other mutations that if you inherit with an S mutation can cause sickle cell disease, sometimes your partner might not have an S mutation, but they might have another mutation that if, if your fetus inherited that as well could cause a form of sickle cell disease. And so that's why I really emphasize the right interpretation of the right test, um, if that makes sense. So. Now we've had the right interpretation of the right test, which brings us to your question, right? Brings us back to your question. For, for that patient, um, we talk about the risk. So I, I don't even think, I think risk is kind of the wrong word. It's like, what are the chances, right? And so we know that if you have sickle cell disease, um, and, and I'm gonna talk about the SS model here. I think that if you have a compound heterozygous form of disease, you should make sure that somebody draws the um, Punnett square for you. To, to help you understand this, you know, we all, the reason that hematologists draw Punnett squares in clinic is to make sure we tell you the right thing. Um, looking at a picture makes a really big difference with this. But we know that if your partner has trait and you have SS disease, then you have a 50% chance of having a child affected by sickle cell disease. And, and something that also sometimes gets missed in this is that if your first child um, has sickle cell disease, it doesn't mean statistically your second child will not have sickle cell disease because it doesn't mean that you will get the other 50% the next time you roll the dice. Every time you roll the dice is an independent event. And so each pregnancy has a 50% chance risk associated with it. 
So some people, that's all they need to know, and they decide that they would like to um, have a baby, and they move on, um, and they go to try to have a baby. And for those people, we talk about um, diagnostic testing for sickle cell disease in utero, which includes an amniocentesis test. Unfortunately, we do not quite yet have cell-free DNA tests to diagnose sickle cell disease in utero, but I think that we should be optimistic that in the future, uh, the cell-free DNA is like so cool. And that's just like a like a blood test, and it's a little just tiny like a bit of test. the baby's blood gets into your blood, so we can test exactly. the baby. It's um, and it's just an amazing test, and it's you know it can be used for other things already, right? So we can use it to test for trisomy twenty one and other disorders. Um, and it, the thing that's so cool about it, right, is that it involves separating maternal DNA from fetal DNA. And of course, um, in this, and it, and it depends on the ratios, right, of, of what kind of mutations you have. And so you can look at those ratios and decide whose DNA you're looking at, the fetus or the mother. Um, so, but it's a little bit challenging with sickle cell because the mother has the mutations, right? So, so anyway, the, that is being worked out. And I'm really hopeful that, that this could be diagnosed by a blood test in the next decade, um, but we're, we're not there yet. So, so anyway, if, you, if you've conceived and you're at risk for having a child with sickle cell, um, one option is to have that testing um, of the fetus. And people make different choices about whether to continue or not continue pregnancies that are affected by sickle cell disease. Of course, that's a very personal decision. Um, and it's also affected by the state laws um, that, where you live around um, access to abortion. So everybody's decision is really personal. And I stress that in my clinic, that, that what, what I want for my patients is for them to have, make the choice that's right for them. Uh, people who choose to continue pregnancies affected by sickle cell disease, I think it's really important that they meet um, a pediatric hematologist and wherever possible meet the amazing parents of children with sickle cell disease so that they can help think about what their future would, will be like and what to expect. Um, and so, okay, so that's like one track. Another track when you're thinking about whether or how to have a child with, if you're at risk for having a child with sickle cell disease is there's a 30-year-old technology called pre-implantation genetic testing, uh, sorry, in vitro fertilization with pre-implantation genetic testing. And, and of course, this involves um, an egg harvest and making embryos outside of out of your out of a woman's body, and then those embryos can be tested for to see whether they're affected by sickle cell disease or not. And then a couple can make a decision about implanting uh, an unaffected embryo or an embryo with sickle trait. Um, but that's sort of that's that's that route. And um, we are working with the Sickle Cell Reproductive Health Education Directive to, to distribute a, um, a pamphlet that patients and doctors at Hopkins and in the Baltimore community helped us make to talk about this reproductive option because it is complex, um, but also very old at this point. And in this country, access to the technology is limited in some places by insurance. However, in, in England, for example, the National Health Service covers it, this option, um, and that's because it's, it's a cost-effective option and also it's the right thing to do. Um, so there are couples in England who've, who've availed themselves of the public health system, and there was a recent um, report of 60 pregnancies to couples at risk for having a child with sickle cell disease. So I, I guess an, another thing that comes up a lot, you know, as, as, uh, as we all age, it gets harder to have children. And that's particularly true, and, and maybe even earlier if you have um, sickle cell disease. And also, some of our warriors go through transplants, which involve um, 
large doses of chemotherapy and sometimes radiation that can be sterilizing. Um, what sort of, you know, pro-fertility things are there out there for people with sickle cell or, or approaches to um, sort of allow people to have children in these situations? Sure. So um, the, the first thing is that I think we know from, from a study that we did at Hopkins that, that about 50% of the patients that we surveyed was a group of, of women with sickle cell disease who are about 33 years old on average. We know from talking to them that about 50% of them uh, agreed with the statement that women with sickle cell disease have difficulty getting pregnant. Um, we don't have great data to support that claim, um, but but I think for me the, the importance of that that result is that it's a it's a real concern in the community. And so the, the first way I address fertility with my patients is I tell them how I, I will know whether they're having a fertility problem. Um, and, and the way that you, that you know whether they're having a fertility problem or not is that you you know what the diagnosis of infertility is. And, and so this is a little tricky because we don't know whether the standard diagnosis of infertility applies to women with sickle cell disease. But if you use this, if you use this as sort of a, a signposts for what you're thinking about, I think it's a good place to start. So the definition of infertility in women without sickle cell disease, the cut point is 35 years. And if you're younger than 35 years old and you've been trying to get pregnant for a year and you have no other risks, known risks to your fertility, then at that point we start to worry that you have a fertility problem. So 35 years, if you're younger, you get a year to try to get pregnant. If you're older than 35 years, you get six months. And, and at that point, you should be referred to a fertility specialist. Now, I think that for individuals with sickle cell disease, the first thing is I try to share that information with them because I think that the first problem is like, I think we, t we tend to dismiss concerns about fertility because we don't have great evidence that, 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 it's, that it's true that there's concerns. So I think the first way to engage this is to honor it, right? How will I know that you're having a fertility problem? Well, we'll measure it, right? If you're trying to get pregnant for a year and you're not pregnant, well, there's a problem because that's what the fertility doctors say, right? So, so that's the first piece is like, how will I know? Um, the second piece is, is sort of about specific um, fertility risks um, in girls and women. And I'm gonna talk about girls and women because boys and men are a slightly different can of worms here, as it were, can, can of sperm. Um, <laughs> um, but um, so for girls, girls and women, the first thing is that fertility preserving options are standards of care for girls and women with sickle cell disease and for all girls and women, by which I mean, if you are a prepubescent girl and you have a fertility risk, ovarian tissue cryopreservation is considered a standard of care. It's not an experimental way to preserve fertility. Similarly, if you're a post-pubescent woman, uh, harvesting eggs and freezing them at a very, very cold temperature is, um, is also a standard way to preserve fertility. So these are non-experimental methods of fertility preservation. And one of the things that we need to work out in the next decade um, is who with sickle cell disease should have those interventions when. And the population that you've specifically identified, Mike, is of course vulnerable in a unique way, and I think we should talk about that. Um, so it, it's, it's true, um, transplant is a, is a risk to fertility, and it's a risk to fertility usually because of two things, radiation and the chemotherapy drugs that are used um, to, to, um, to attack the bone marrow, to, to wash out the bone marrow. And, um, and I think 
that for the radiation, it's important to remember when we irradiate boys for transplant, we can protect their testicles because they're sort of outside the body. But it turns out if you try to block the ovaries, and there are people who have tried to do this with surgery as well as with lead, um, if you try to block the ovaries, you block the pelvis, and so you don't irradiate a major site of bone marrow in the body. So there's really not a great um, physical block to protect the ovaries. There are some medical ways to protect the ovaries from, from radiation and, and chemotherapy, but they, but they oh, that have been attempted, but they haven't really they haven't really worked out. I think we are moving towards a standard where all children um, and adults with sickle cell disease receive fertility preservation both if, if they have not completed their families uh, before transplant. That, um, that is what I call the NIH precedent because at NIH they've, they offer fertility preservation to everyone going, going through transplant. And so um, I, I think that, that it needs to be an option for everybody who has this. Another piece that complicates this for girls and women that has not yet adequately been been um, looked at is that your your fertility, your ovarian reserve, your eggs, your the number of eggs you have um, is, before transplant should predict something about what your ovarian reserve looks like after your transplant. Um, and so we have also not really applied that knowledge, which we've learned mostly from oncology patients, to the sickle cell community yet. You know, fertility preservation, pre-implantation, genetic diagnosis, even contraception. Like these are all huge medical advances that have a lot of opportunity to help our patients. But I, I, I think a big problem we run into is access. What, what is access like at Hopkins? Um, what can we do to make sure that our warriors have access to everything they need? And maybe some um, advice from the both of you of how to self-advocate if you are a patient not being able to get the services that you need? This is a complicated question, and while I wish there was some form of Hopkins exceptionalism that could fix it, there isn't. To some degree, fertility is an institutional problem, by which I mean we know from pediatric cancer that um, if you have fertility specialists in-house, well, guess what? People are much more likely to receive fertility care. So, so, no, so there are structural things that healthcare systems do or can do to facilitate access within how clinics are structured, right? Like if there are pediatric hematologists, like we know that in pediatric oncology, we've brought this reproductive health care, this fertility preservation aspect into the oncology clinic. Um, and there, you know, there's growing calls to do this more, even more comprehensively in that setting. So, so there are access things within each healthcare system, but I think your question speaks more to this issue of insurance coverage for, um, for an intervention that's expensive, right? So, so um, fertility preservation for, for girls and women is, is more expensive than it is for collecting a semen sample and spinning that down and isolating it. It's just, it involves expensive drugs, it involves procedures. Um, it's, it's a really different thing. Um, at the moment, fertility preservation law and in vitro fertilization access um, is really uh, determined on a state-by-state -state basis. And the Alliance for Fertility Preservation and other organizations have really done um, tremendous work. Resolve is, an, is the um, national uh, infertility organization that advocates for infertility benefits for people. Um, people have really been pushing in various places to change the law to bring coverage to people. Um, and, and in some places, um, the laws do that, right? They allow people to access these different things. We see, for example, in Massachusetts, that even when you have a, a comprehensive fertility benefit, um, and this is mostly about infertility access, but I think it, it's the case 
proves an important point. Um, even, even when you have that access, we see that black women use that access less often than other groups, and that needs to be understood. We know there are delays in referrals for black women for infertility treatment, and there also is stigma within the black community around fertility. And so, you know, one, one thing is like that just, if we just get access, that's not enough, but access is extremely important. And so this is gonna be a state by state issue. Um, as far as I know, the only state with Medicaid insurance coverage for fertility preservation is Illinois. Um, so we have to ask Dr. Sue how they did that. Um, but, but, um, but it's a really, it's a state by state fight. And um, I think that, that the Sickle Cell Reproductive Health Education Directive and the American Society of Hematology are starting to pay attention to these laws and work in collaboration, right? So we know that the fertility preservation access issue affects people with Medicaid, whether they have sickle cell disease or whether they have cancer. The main difference is that, that uh, foundation money for children with cancer can sometimes cover gaps, whereas we lack that kind of foundation money in sickle cell disease. Um, to date. So how can patients advocate for themselves? I, I think that's how can great. patients advocate for themselves? Well, first, um, ha have the conversations with the with your doctors. Um, the second is that the, the experts in fertility are actually the fertility doctors. So I think it's really worth seeing either um, a pediatric endocrinologist who knows about fertility in the context of chemotherapy because they work with the pediatric oncology group where you get care. Um, if you're an adult, seeing a reproductive endocrinologist who's willing to look into this. Um, that's the first step, right? Because the real assessment of, of what's needed um, and, and what's possible will come from that care team. Um, and so I think that it has to be sort of a conversation between hematology, primary care, whoever has to make the referral. But I think that's, that's one thing that families can request. You, you mentioned that some of the cancer patients are able to, if they have a gap in their coverage, get some support from foundations. Those are like private charitable foundations. That's right. So, so I think we need to support our sickle cell private charitable foundations too. Absolutely. And, um, and I think, you know, there's also some remarkable examples of advocacy within systems. So um, there's a, a couple of great papers I want to shout out to my colleague at Columbia University, Adrian Mishkin, who's um, a psychiatrist who cares for adults with sickle cell disease going through transplant. Um, and she's the liaison to the transplant team. And she's written a couple of really nice papers um, providing an overview of fertility, subfertility, and infertility and sickle cell disease and, and risks related to that. She's also done remarkable work at her home institution, making sure that the same uh, discounts that are offered to patients through the Livestrong Foundation are also offered to patients with sickle cell disease. And so I think that, you know, we, um, Dr. Mishkin inspires me because she reminds me there is nothing that is not on the table to be negotiated, right? And so I think as sickle cell doctors, we have to remember that too, that, that if we bring issues to the table, it's possible that people respond in ways that we don't expect. And we should give them that opportunity to surprise us. <laughs> <laughs> we could probably go on forever, and I would love to have you back to talk more about this stuff. But before we close out the podcast, I want to get into a little bit. How did you get into sickle cell? You know, I once met a pediatric bone marrow transplant doctor on an airplane who was from Morocco. And I asked him how he got into pediatric bone marrow transplant. And he said, I saw her walking down the street one night and it was <laughs> love. I uh, met my first sickle cell patients uh, when I was in medical school, but um, it was at Montefiore with um, an amazing mentorship team and just 
a, a beautiful and amazing group of patients that I knew that I was called to do this work. Um, it is a, an alignment of mind and heart for me. And um, it's a patient population that is fantastic and fantastically medically complex. Um, and uh, just seemed like a really fantastic opportunity to, to merge um, my concerns uh, with healthcare justice and my concerns with using my medical skills to the tops of my abilities. Well, thank goodness for that chance encounter in the street. Um, this was this was wonderful, Dr. Packer, um, and, and really, we would love to have you back. Thank you so much. Thanks. It would be a pleasure. I loved that conversation, Dr. C. I learned so much, and I hope the Warriors and any clinicians that were, you know, listening in learned something, too. What was your biggest takeaway? Boy, there was so much there, but I, my biggest takeaway is that we're not having enough conversations about this in clinic and in general. Um, I think there are so many issues there and they're so important and, and we're really not giving them enough attention. I, another huge takeaway, though, is Amara's job is in jeopardy. I mean, he missed one episode <laughs> and you filled in fantastically. So um, well, I really appreciate I'm, I'm gonna it. I'm going to email him immediately or maybe I'll like send him a tweet and be like, <laughs> just so you know, new host to cheat code, sucker. <laughs> he'll, he'll, he'll respond immediately to the tweet. But uh, that's well, thank awesome. you for having me, Warriors. Thank you for having me. Check out Flow on the Bloodstream Media Network if you want to learn more about um, extreme menstrual cycles and keep on, keep on. Hang out, wait yeah. to come back and bug you guys on cheat codes again. That sounds great. And uh, really huge thanks to our guest today, Dr. Lydia Pecker, who's, you know, I think the world's expert in this and that came across in the um, interview. And uh, keep living well with sickle cell. Um, follow me at Imagineer and follow the Cheat Codes podcast. Share this with somebody who can learn something from it. Thank you. <laughs>